All right, Genesis chapter 13 is where we pick back up. If you remember, we were looking at Abraham, and at this point he has sort of had a lapse in his faith. Abraham sort of for a season we saw there kind of midway through chapter 12 after he got into the land of promise that God called him to and had embraced the call of God upon his life that a famine struck for a season. And Abraham, it seems, in a lapse of faith, in a time of unbelief and panic, uh, he sort of departed from God's plan for his life. He didn't consult the Lord. We see nothing of him praying and asking what God would have him to do. Instead, it seems he sort of responded by kind of maybe hitting the panic button, if you would. And it says he went down to Egypt. And of course, when he went down to Egypt and walked away from God's plan for his life, For a season, we saw all kinds of problems began to happen. He began to compromise and make concessions. He was encouraging his wife to do the same thing. Uh, They found themselves in a threatening and vulnerable place as a family. And as always, when we walk away from God's plan for our life or take our little detours as we all do sometimes, the the tragedy is, is we usually don't do it alone. Uh, We usually, when we depart, take those along with us who we have a realm of influence over. And uh, many a times we don't even quite realize how many people we really do have influence over. And Abram, as he took this spiritual detour for a season, the family, it seems those in his household, the servants, all those went with him. And of course, ultimately, the kind of the tarnished testimony, remember, Pharaoh ultimately uh, receives this revelation from God that, Uh, Sarai is actually Abram's wife and not his sister as they kind of contrive this little lie to kind of protect and and keep Abram alive somehow because he was threatened. And, and of course, the poor testimony is Pharaoh found out and kind of told him, look, get out of here. And he kicks him out and he kind of has to rebuke the man of God. Here you have an unbeliever and a pagan man rebuking a child of God, which is never a good thing when something like that's happening, when the world is having to set the standard of, of righteousness for God's people. And too often, too often, we have seen that play out. And it's such a shame and a tragedy when ungodly people are the ones saying, wait a minute, aren't you a Christian? Or, or, or aren't you supposed to be a follower of the Bible? And they're having to tell us what the standard of righteousness is rather than us demonstrating that by the way that we're living out our lives. Well, with sort of his tail between his legs and no doubt a very humbling experience though God intervened and protected Sarai and gave him back to Abram and they got sent out of Egypt the wonderful thing is Abram didn't wallow in condemnation he didn't fall apart in self-pity and typically that's what the devil wants us to do when we take spiritual detours or we backslide what the devil likes to do on those occasions is to get us to just wallow in self-pity and personal condemnation and, well, I've messed up so bad or I've already gone so far anyway. Why bother read my Bible anymore? Or I shouldn't go to church because that's just, I don't deserve to go to And we just find ourselves really in this black hole. Instead of doing what Abram did, which is chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Abram went up from Egypt. In other words, he, Egypt, again, a type of the world, he just left. He went back to where he knew he needed to be. And when we fall and we stumble and we take spiritual detours or we walk away from God's plan for our life, whatever the time or season or purpose may be that we did it, 
When we realize what we've done wrong and that we're not where we're supposed to be, the very simple thing to do is exactly what Jesus, remember, told the church of Ephesus to do when they had, it says, left their first love. He said, remember the height from where you've fallen and repent, that is turn around, have a change of mind. And he says, go back and do the first works. In other words, get back on track to where you know you were supposed to be at. And that's what we saw Abram do. Abram, it says, took his whole family and he went on his journey. He went back up to Bethel, where the place where his tent and his altar had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. It says, the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and he began to call on the name of the Lord. So he's this beautiful example. Yes, Abraham fumbles, he fails but yet shows you that he's a man who walks by faith and a man who loved the Lord. He realizes his mistake. He's walked away from God's plan in his life, and he turns around, and he goes back to get back to where he started. He goes back to the altar, back to the place of seeking the Lord, which is what God wants us to do. Just get back to where we're supposed to be, back to sort of that beginning ground where we're seeking the Lord again and doing those things that we know that we should. Well, it was during that time, we kind of left off there at the end of kind of verse 9, where then remember this kind of contention broke out between Abram and Lot's herdsmen. It says the land wasn't big enough to support both of them, and strife began to happen between the two of their uh, herdsmen as they're working out in the fields, tending their animals. Uh, So at that point, when this strife begins to happen, there's arguing and bickering among them. We saw at the end of our study last week that Abram in verse 8 said to Lot as the elder one in the family, which shows you the type of man that he was, please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. He says, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. So we talked last time as we ended this section here of how Abraham, you can tell he is back on track now because look at the mature and the godly attitude that he has. He says, look, it, we're brethren. We're, it's not good for us to be fighting and having strife between us. And it doesn't seem that it's working out for us to be in partnership anymore. And Amos 3.3 3 says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? If two people don't agree and they're not going the same direction, they can't walk together. Somebody's going to have to go a different direction or they're going to have to change and just go two separate directions. And sometimes that's part of the plan of God for our lives. Sometimes God initiates a time of separation. And Abraham realized at this time God is creating circumstances in order for me and Lot to go our separate ways. And God was bringing Abram as a part of this time of repentance and coming back to the Lord and getting back on track spiritually, a part of the process, yes, it was rebuilding the altar, yes, it was beginning to seek the Lord again, but another part of Abram getting back on track spiritually was a time period in his life where God was saying, you know what, there needs to be some separation in your life from certain individuals who are not on the same spiritual path and perspective that you are. And so God brings this time of separation. He uses contention and problems circumstantially to make Abram realize, look, this isn't going to work. We shouldn't be fighting. He says, this is a poor testimony to those in the land. So he says, look, however you want to do this, Lot, and again, this attitude of humility, 
and generosity and shows you as a man of faith, Lot, whatever you want. If you want to go to the right, go to the right, I'll go to the left. You want to go to the left, fine, go to the left. And he lets Lot be the one to decide, which is tremendous humility. It shows you that Abram's confidence is in God because he's not striving to cling to anything. He's not striving to hang on to something. Again, he's the elder person in a patriarchal society. That right of deciding should have been his. It should have absolutely been his. But instead, in humility, because he knows, hey, God is the one who will take care of me, and the Lord will provide for me, and the Lord will orchestrate his plan for my life, and therefore, I don't have to strive or cling or try and make something happen or fight for something. And that's a real mistake that many times we make. Is, is we, we fight and strive to try and get our own way and we think we have to defend ourselves and you know, our, if you don't look out for yourself, nobody else is going to look out for you and our world indoctrinates us with this idea. And as a result, we become, like many people in this world, where we're always looking out for ourselves. And we think if we don't look out for ourselves and make something happen, something won't happen. And Abram shows us the life of faith has no scheming, it has no striving, it has an open hand and just says, you know what? I don't have to hang on to anything because God will give me what God wants to give me. And so therefore I can defer. James chapter 3 tells us that wisdom from above is pure, peaceable. And it says this, willing to yield. A lot of times you can tell God's wisdom at work because when God's wisdom is at work in someone's life, it, they have the ability to say, you know what, hey, whatever, you pick first or, or whatever you want. I'll just, I'll take what's left. And there's that willing to just yield and defer to someone else and this great example of Abram doing this. Now, if Lot had a right attitude, he would have instantly said, no, no, Uncle Abraham, that's, I can't do that. I mean, out of respect for you, as my elder, you're the one whose God's calling is on, and you, you're the one who's the elder one in the relationship. You, I can't do that. You pick. But, of course, as we'll see, Lot was more of a carnal believer. And this is the reason that God is separating Abram from him so that Abram's not drugged down by the different temperament between the two of them because they weren't equally yoked spiritually so it tells us as abram gives him this opportunity that lot verse 10 it says lifted his eyes and he saw all the plain of jordan that it was notice well watered everywhere before it says telling us commentary this was before the lord had destroyed sodom and gomorrah and it was like the garden of the lord so it had some type of a you know, a, a reminder of just sort of this looks like the paradise of God. So it was a beautiful, beautiful piece of territory as he beheld it with his eyes. Notice as well, verse 10, it was like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. And then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. So Abram says, Lot, I'll let you pick. You pick whatever you take, that's fine, and, and whatever's left over, then, then that's okay with me. And it says Lot instantly, again, selfishly, carnally, says he lifts up his eyes, and notice how he makes his eyes, I mean how he makes his choice. He makes his choice according to his sight. He makes his decisions not based on is this God's will, but he makes his decisions solely upon one thing, this looks good in the natural it looks good to my eyes. It looks like the paradise of God. It looks like, it says, 
like the land of Egypt. And again, what's Egypt? Egypt, as we talked about, it's a type of the world. And see, when Lot went down to Egypt, what happened? He got an appetite for Egypt. He got an appetite for the things of the world. So he did what many people do. He looked at it from a human perspective, from a natural perspective, and he said, hey, that looks like the path of success. That looks like the opportunity for prosperity. That looks like the golden gate. That looks like prosperity, affluence, money, success, a comfortable lifestyle. By golly, that has got to be the place that I should choose to go. And he made his decision with his eyes with a natural perspective rather than praying and saying, but Lord, is this your will? Is this what you would have for me? Where would you have me to go? There's no mention again of prayer or seeking the Lord. In verse 11, you can tell what his motivation is because notice I have it circled in my Bible. It says, then Lot, three words, chose for himself. That's how he made choices, what was best for himself. Again, this is a fitting picture of, again, the Bible says Lot's a believer. Let's never forget that. Peter tells us that. Now, he's the picturesque example in the Bible of a very carnal believer. We might say saved soul, wasted life kind of a thing. We understand that concept. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks to the Corinthians about how they were carnal. They were saved, but they were carnal, and they just they lived very carnal, fleshly lives, though they were believers. And, and Lot is a perfect example of that. And you notice that one of the marks of a carnal believer is they have a loving appetite for the world. They're driven by what they see with their eyes. And they're individuals who they choose for themselves. Rather than saying, God, what's your will for my life? They choose for themselves. They choose according to what they want. And that's how they make their decisions. It's not, God, what's your will? Lord, what would you have for me? It's, this is what I want, so therefore that's what I'm going after. It says, Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and he journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Literally, the language seems to indicate the Lord separated them from each other. Again, God is behind this whole separation. God is orchestrating a separation of Lot away from Abram, for Abram's spiritual benefit. And let me just say again for emphasis, sometimes part of God's plan for your life may be for God to separate someone from your life for your spiritual benefit. Someone who maybe has a, a, a carnal outlook or does not have the same spiritual perspective or is only going to drag you down and draw you away spiritually from God's plan for your life, sometimes God will orchestrate a separation in your life. And you need to realize that that could very much be the loving, sovereign plan of God, that God may be trying to separate someone from you and separate you from someone relationally. And, and you may be doing everything. Oh, I feel so bad about this. It may not be something to feel bad about. Maybe it's the will of the Lord. And God's allowing this and causing it to happen for the fact that if God does not separate you from that individual, it's going to hinder you spiritually from the plan of God in your life. And this was the case with Abram. Lot needed to be taken out of Abram's life. Lot was in Lot, Abram's life, and ultimately, what did God say to Abram when he called him? Leave your land and leave your what? Your family. And this was part of God saying, look, Abram, you have not fully 
complied with everything I've asked for your plan, my plan to be fulfilled in your life. So therefore, and I love that the Lord does this, if you won't do it, I'll do it for you. And I love that the Lord does that. I don't know about you. I love that the fact that even when I, don't, when I don't completely follow through with what's best for my life, God says, look, well, if you won't do it, that's great. I'll just intervene and cause circumstances. I'll do it for you. I will cause circumstances to happen in a way whereby I separate this person from your life or I remove this situation from you. And, and the Lord has a way of doing that. Uh, and I've seen over the years, you know, there have been occasions where I, I, I look back and in hindsight, and sometimes I even realize it in the moment, you know what, this is the Lord's doing. You know, I use this term honestly. There are sometimes divine subtractions that God can bring into a believer's life where he divinely subtracts someone from your life for your own spiritual benefit. And this was the case with Abram being taken away from Lot now, they separated from each other. Verse 12, and Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot, it says, dwelt in the cities of the plain. And notice, Lot pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So at this point, he pitches his tent towards the land of Sodom. Chapter 14 says that he actually then eventually dwells in Sodom. And then chapter 19 tells us that he's sitting in the gate of of Sodom, which means that he's involved in their political affairs and their decision making. He's become integrated in the society of Sodom. And notice how a progression of backsliding happens, you know, w w little concessions at a time. First, he's kind of, he's on the edge of Sodom. You know, he's attracted to it. He has an appetite for the world. And so, so he pitches his tent towards Sodom. He, he, he wants to get as close to Sodom as he can, but ultimately he realizes, look at verse 13, it says, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. See, Lot looked with his eyes and, oh man, the success, the prosperity, the beauty of that land. I mean, yeah, the people are totally wicked and, and, and they're exceedingly ungodly and, and evil, but oh, all the opportunity and the affluence, and that's the way, you know, we, we see all the opportunity of the world and we don't take into consideration sometimes when we pursue things in the world, but, but what kind of spiritual impact is that going to have on me? If I go after this, you know, I have to take into consideration, well, if I'm going to pursue this, maybe it looks like a really grand and a great thing, but what's the spiritual impact going to be in my life? And here it says the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And I wonder if that was part of Lot's hesitation as he went. But he just pitched his tent on the edge of Sodom. Because well, I don't want to get too, I want to get as close as I can without going completely in. I just, I just want to kind of get on the edge of sin. I want to just kind of flirt with this compromise. I want to get as close as I can and be as worldly as I can but still be a follower of God. And, and, and here you have Lot, interesting, on the edge of Sodom. And then the next time you see it, his whole family's in Sodom. And then ultimately, he's involved in Sodom as one of the rulers in the city gate. And, and again, that's how it works, just small concessions. And it's so important to realize that because I, I promise you this. Nobody ever that I've ever spoken to that I've talked to, let's say they're, you know, they've... Uh, committed adultery or, or they're, they're a drug addict. I've never met someone who said, you know what, I'll be honest with you. I just, one day I woke up and I thought, I just, I think I just want to be a drug addict. I just, I just decided I'm just going to be a hardcore drug addict. Nobody ever does that. You talk to them, you hear their story, and it, it, was, it was little concessions. 
It was little compromises. It started out with being on the edge of something and then trying something a little bit and then a little bit further and a little bit further. And, and that's always how sin and the world draws us in just a little bit of time. And Lot's a perfect example of how that very thing happened and, and how this must have broke Abram's heart. Imagine Abram watching Lot just walk away and how it must have broken his heart. Again, people are emotional and, and this... Abram, it seems, had kind of raised Lot. And there was probably this very sad moment as this separation was happening in Abram's life. And if you've ever been through any kind of a, you know, a separation where the Lord kind of takes somebody out of your life, it, it still can be painful. And it can be heart-wrenching. And yet those are some of the times in our lives when God takes us through those things when maybe some of those times we have some of the greatest experiences that we do with the Lord. Because as Lot is now departing and separating it's at verse 14, it says, And the Lord, notice, now spoke to Abram after Lot had separated from him. So sometimes God takes someone out of your life so that he can get your life's attention once again and begin to speak to you in personal and powerful ways. So notice, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, and of course that's not possible, but he says if somebody could number all the dust of the earth, he says then your descendants also could be numbered. In other words, just an analogy to describe the tremendous blessing and multiplication God was going to bring. But notice what happens. Abram offers this opportunity to Lot, and it says that Lot, verse 10, lifted his eyes and saw with his natural eye. And then it says Lot chose for himself, sort of greedily and selfishly, what he wanted for himself. And how beautiful, Abram, the one who just lets go of everything and trusts God and doesn't try and cling and make it happen. So he just says, well, whatever. Just, and he just kind of takes his hands off because this is living a life by faith. He's not forcing to make something happen. God now says to Abram, Abram, lift your eyes. Lot lifted up his own eyes. And the lust of his eyes was the way that he pursued and made his choice. God now says to Abram, Abram, you lift your eyes now. And he says, and look northward and southward and eastward and westward. In other words, take a look all around. And as he's standing there from a place of elevation, looking around, he can see all the area of Canaan. And then God says to him, Abram, see all that? I will give that to you. And interesting, even the area that Lot himself was moving towards, God says to Abram, he chose for himself, but Abram it doesn't matter what he chose for himself. I'm going to give it all to you because I'm the possessor of all of it. And you know how wonderful to realize that a life of faith is a life of just inheriting what God gives. You don't have to go chasing things for yourself. God will give things to you. God will supply. God will bless. And, and let people chase what they will and let people pursue what they will. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you, shall be given unto you. And Abram here, as he stays in the plan of God and his trust is in God, God says, Abram, lift up your eyes, look from where you are. And I think sometimes the Lord asks us to do that. He says, look, from right, from right where you're at, take perspective. 
Take inventory. Lift up your eyes from where you are. Look around. And look around. What do you see right now? Look all around you. And God says to Abram, all the land you see, I will give to you and your descendants. And then verse 17, as he's looking around, the Lord then gives them a command, arise, walk in the land and through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So God's reaffirming his promise to Abraham. God's reaffirming his calling to Abraham. And God says, Abram, don't just look at it. He says, I want you to go now and appropriate it by faith. And see, there comes a time where we hear the word of the Lord when we have to walk out the word of the Lord. So he says, Abram, now I, I want you to go walk through the land. I want you to go walk through that land and, and to realize that that land has been given to you and to walk out and to experience what God has intended for our lives. Verse 18, it says, Then Abram moved his tent and he went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built again, notice, an altar there to the Lord. Again, everywhere we see Abram going, he's the man of the tent and he's the man of the altar. He has a light touch on this world. He realizes this isn't his permanent dwelling place. And Abram had tons of money. Beginning of chapter 13, remember, told us that he was overloaded with gold and silver. He was a wealthy man. He could have built some really tremendous dwelling places, but Abram, everywhere he went, he dwelt in a tent because he had a light touch on this world, and he was a man who everywhere he went, he built an altar. He was a man of worship. He was a man who understood sacrifice and fellowship and communion with God. And now he is there, interesting, it says, by the terebinth trees which are in Hebron. And interesting, there he builds this altar in Hebron, which sort of seems to be the place where he kind of settles in. And the word Hebron, interestingly enough, literally means communion or fellowship. And no doubt Abram, as he builds the altar there in Hebron, he realizes, hey, th this is where my strength comes from, from being in the place of fellowship, from being in the place of communion with God and having an altar where I spend time with God and fellowship with God. That's the thing, he says, that really brings strength and stability into my life. And it seems that's kind of where he sort of settles in for a season. And we see him spending a good season of time there in Hebron. Well, chapter 14 says, And it came to pass in those days of Aramaphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, and Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they, those four kings in verse 1, which are eastern kings in their territory, that those four kings, it says, made war with, here we go, Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined in the valley of Siddim. And there we have inserted, this is the Salt Sea. So it seems the, the valley referred to there, the Salt Sea, is a reference to a valley that may have existed in the area where currently is the Dead Sea in the land of Israel, that at one time there may have been more of a valley there, it says, because this valley of Siddim is, that is, the Salt Sea. And it seems sort of in hindsight that this is being inserted, that at times there was, this was a valley that they met together in for this war. So you have this description now of a confederation of four kings in the east mentioned in verse 1, 
and in verse 2, a confederation of five kings, which basically, I'll simplify it for you, are located in the plains of Jordan. Uh, So you have these different kings named in the territories, four that are eastern kings, five from verse 2 confederated together to make war against the four in verse 1, which are from the area of the plains of Jordan. And verse 4 tells us that 12 years those kings had served uh, Chedorlaomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. So for a season of time, Chedorlaomer was the king mentioned in verse 1 from the east, and it seems he was sort of the prominent uh, dignitary among this confederation of kings, and that he had conquered and subdued kings or those in kind of small city-states in that area, and they probably paid tribute. And for a season of a dozen years, they were paying tribute, they were subservient to Chedorlaomer and his rulership. And in the 13th year, they decide, that's it, we've had enough. And we're going to revolt, we're tired of paying tribute to this guy, we're tired of him controlling us, so they're going to lead a rebellion, which is why the five kings come together as a confederation and they figure they're going to throw off this rulership over their lives. Interesting, here's the first time the word number 13 shows up in the Bible and interesting, it's connected together with rebellion. And many times you'll see in the scriptures where the number 13 arises, it's many times representative of rebellion. Uh, And 12, interesting, is the number of governments Uh, And 13 in the scriptures many times symbolically represents rebellion. And here the first time it shows up, it was in the 13th year. They decide that's it. We're going to rebel against this guy's control. So verse 5 then tells us it was in the 14th year of Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him that they had come up and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Carneum the Zuzum in Ham, and the Emim in shavath Kariathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El-Paran, which is by the wilderness. You have all this mapped out in your head, right? Go home, get out your Bible atlas. You can see what that's describing there if it really intrigues you that much. Well, verse 7 says, they then turned back. So they're going through and invading different territories, Chedorlaomer and these kings who kind of worked in partnership and confederacy with him. They're on a sort of attack to no doubt gain more territory at this particular season. And then verse 7, they turned back and came to En-Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and they attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazaron Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim. So we now come back commentary-wise to the description of this battle that's about to take place between the four kings and the five that want to throw off in a rebellion this control over them. Verse 9, they came out to battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, and Arafel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. I wish I could have just said that more simply, don't you? <laughs> it takes 11 verses to tell us that. Four kings against five. That's the bottom line there if you got lost. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits. The idea is um, 
kind of tar pits, if you can get the idea in your mind here. That the, and there is lots of minerals, if you know, in the, the Dead Sea, you know, the, in that territory. You have all the, when I went there, I brought home these uh, you know, creams and lotions for my wife because they say they got the best minerals or whatever. And there's lots of minerals in this area uh, of the Salt Sea, a tremendous concentration. And it says that there was also, at this time, numbers of asphalt pits. And it says the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and as they're fleeing, because apparently they're losing the battle, some of them fell there, and the remainder then fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And notice, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. Notice where he's at now. He's now dwelling in Sodom and all his goods, and they departed. So here's basically what happens. As this rebellion attempt is made, where basically the five kings come together and say, that's it, we're tired of Chedorlaomer ruling over us, and him and his three buddies running around and attacking everybody, so they decide that's it, while Chedorlaomer and his other three buddies are in the midst of one of their invasions going through the area. They come out in the Valley of Siddim and they stage a battle and they say, that's it. There's five of us. There's four of them. Certainly we should be able to overthrow them. It's been 12 years of this and they lose. And Chedorlaomer and his other three kings overrun them. And as a result of overrunning the king of Sodom as well as the king of Gomorrah, it says there in verse 11 and 12 that they then looted those territories and they took all their goods and their provisions. And as a result, where was Lot dwelling? In Sodom. And now what happens? He becomes captive now and he becomes a prisoner because he was dwelling in the place where he chose to go. And how often is that the case? You know, when people want to go and dwell in Sodom and they want to go fool around and go back to the ways of the world and the things of the world, that many times that's what happened. They end up finding themselves captive. They end up finding themselves, in essence, kind of ensnared and, and controlled and under the rulership and the bondage of, of someone else. And now at this point it tells us they take Lot and all of his goods and now Lot's a prisoner. Lot's a prisoner. And because of his choices, now he finds himself imprisoned in a place where he doesn't want to be. And everything has been taken away from him. And you know, this kind of just reminds me of even what Paul says to, to Timothy in his second letter. I'll just read to you quickly where Paul gives an exhortation to Timothy. And he says this. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 2 at the end of the chapter. He says, Timothy, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all able to teach and patient, and then he says this, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance that they may know the truth and come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And see, this is what happens when spiritual compromise continues to progress in a person's life, eventually the Bible says people literally lose their senses and they become ensnared by the devil. And Paul says to Timothy, some of them have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. 
And he's telling Timothy as a servant of the Lord, listen, you need to be willing at times to go and to address those who are in that place. He says, if perhaps God will grant them repentance that they may know the truth, come to their senses and escape, that they might be delivered. And sometimes God calls us, if we see someone in that spot, to love them and care about them enough to pursue them. And here in this situation, Lot now finds himself in a very bad place. In verse 13, by the grace of God, it says, Then one who had escaped, Genesis 14:13, came and told Abram the Hebrew. Interesting, there's the first time the word Hebrew shows up in the Bible. This one escapes and tells Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees in Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So Abram's dwelling in the land where God's called him to be, and he's establishing alliances, he's making proper relationships, God's settling his life, he's beginning to experience God's plan for his life. And verse 14 says, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he said, serves him right. Well, it doesn't say that, does it? If I was writing the Bible, that's what it would say. Let him try that out for a while. He wanted to pick Sodom and get him more. That's what he picked. He picked Sodom, so hey, how's that working for you? How's Sodom working out for you? And that many times is the attitude that I initially have. When somebody takes a spiritual detour or they get off track or they go back into the world and they get all entangled in the world and then they're imprisoned and they're captured and stuff, right? Our natural tendency, if we don't allow the love of God to flow through our lives the way it should, is to, well, you know, his choice. He, he decided to go back into that stuff. And so, um, you know, I guess I'll pray for him that God, it doesn't say that. Look, Abram doesn't even need an explanation of what happened. All he knows is my brother has been taken captive. He's a prisoner. I need to go help him. I have to go rescue him. And it tells us that's exactly, again, what Abram does because Abram's a man of God and this is what a person of God does. This is what the Lord would have us do. It's what Paul instructed Timothy to do. We just read a few minutes ago in 2 Timothy. It says, when somebody comes and gives word to Abram, verse 14, when Abram heard his brother was taken captive... He armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, from Hebron in pursuit to Dan, which is way due north, that's over a hundred mile journey. So it wasn't even like Abram just went over to the next village. This is an extensive process and a costly sacrificial experience to go and to rescue someone who made really poor choices and foolish decisions and brought all these consequences upon himself. He'd made his own decisions and his own choices and he brought all these consequences upon himself and Abram here not only has the love to pursue his brother when he realizes he's been taken captive, but he goes through quite an extensive effort here willing to pay personal cost himself in the process, it says that he arms his 318 trade servants. So it gives you an idea of the wealth and the blessing and prosperity God had brought into Abram's life. In his own household, 
It says he had in, in the midst of his uh, kind of dwelling where he lived, 318 armed servants. Now, that's a pretty good-sized militia that he has right in his own household. So he takes these armed servants... And it says that he then takes them and goes in pursuit as far as Dan, seeking to go rescue now Lot, his brother. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So Abram, interesting to see. Again, first time in the Bible, Genesis 14, that we see war and conflict taking place. And now Abram, we find, again, not for selfish reasons, Abram has trained servants, he has armed servants. Why? For his own safety, for the protection of his own family. And now, by divine direction, he goes now on a mission, on a military mission, to go and to rescue Lot, who has been captured. And he goes now, and almost kind of like a, a Gideon experience. Remember Gideon with 300 overthrew the 135,000 Midianites? I mean, he's going up against this king of uh, Chedalamer with, with a confederation of four different nations all together with 318 men and himself. And he makes this night invasion, he attacks them, and God delivers his enemies into their hands and gives them victory to set free Lot. And we know the Lord is the one that did it because chapter 14, verse 20, it says, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. The reason Abraham succeeded was because God blessed his military endeavor and God delivered his enemies into his hand and gave him back not only all the people, but especially, it says, he brought back his brother Lot and his goods. And again, I, I love this, because we think from our spirit, this is what the heart of the Lord gets, is that we would reach out to those who need to be drawn back. Again, the New Testament gives us similar principles of how we ought to take these things into consideration. It tells us in the New Testament regarding something very similar James 5, verse 19, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And how many times do these occasions present themselves to us as God's people when spiritually someone like a lot and they wander away from the truth, and they get themselves into some trouble, and, and God says, you know what, look, I, I want you to go on a rescue mission. I, I want you to go after that wandering sheep. I want you to pursue them. I want you to initiate. I want you, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And I think a lot of times we just think, well, let's seek and save those who are lost, those who aren't saved. Yes, but the Bible also exhorts us that if somebody wanders from the truth, somebody backslides, that as a Christian, we should love them enough instead of just retreating into criticism and saying, well, I want an explanation, that we should love them enough, the Bible says, that we should go after them and try and turn them back. And he says here that whoever turns someone back, turns a sinner from the error of his way, will save a soul from death 
and cover a multitude of sins. And there may be somebody in your life that maybe is, is like a lot. And you know what? Maybe the Lord would say, look, I know it may be costly. I know it may even be a little bit risky. But I want you to go after them. I want you to see if God would use you to deliver them and to get them back on track. And this beautiful story here of Abram, though Lot had made foolish decisions as his young nephew, he goes after him and it says he brought back his brother Lot and all his goods as well as the women and the people. Verse 17 tells us, Genesis 14, and then the king of Sodom, who was a part of this rescue that Abram had just done, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Sheva, which many believe could be a reference to the Kidron Valley that's referred to there, which is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. So at this point, the king of Sodom comes out and greets him. And at the same time, the king of Sodom comes out to greet him after this victory. Verse 18 says also this person who was the king of Salem. So two kings now come out to greet Abram after this tremendous victory of defeating those kings and rescuing the people they had taken captive, the king of Sodom comes out. And verse 18 then says, And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, and ultimately Salem would be the place that we know as Jerusalem. Uh, Salem means peace. So Melchizedek, the idea is king of peace. And here he says that Melchizedek, which, interesting, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So now all of a sudden this person steps forth. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, who is in the, from the place of the king of peace, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest, it says, of God Most High, and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says, Abram gave him a tithe, or a tenth, literally, of all. As a response to this blessing, he gave him a tenth portion of all of the blessing in which he had just received. So, all of a sudden now, steps onto the canvas this man Melchizedek. We have this one reference to him here in Genesis we don't see him mentioned again for another thousand years until David mentions him in Psalm 110. And then again, we don't have any mention of Melchizedek until we get to the book of Hebrews, where we get a lot more light shed in Hebrews 5, 6, and particularly chapter 7. And the question comes to mind, and, and you can dispute it backward and forward, who is this personage Melchizedek? Who is this Melchizedek, king of righteousness, the king of Salem or the king of peace, and notice he is someone, it says in verse 18, who is both a king and a priest. So he holds two offices. He holds the office of a king and the office of a priest. Very unusual. Someone may hold the office of a priest and someone may hold the office of a king, but no one ever held the dual office of being a king and a priest. Now, we read this, Hebrews 7, verse 1 through 7, I'll just read through it briefly for sake of time. You might want to jot it in your notes. It tells us this, the writer of Hebrews gives us some insight regarding Melchizedek. He says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abram also gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. 
says this, that he was without father, without mother, and without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest continually. So the writer of Hebrews says this Melchizedek, he was out father, without mother, he had no genealogy, nor beginning of days or end of days, and he was like unto the Son of God. And that he is a priestly line that remains a continual, perpetual priesthood continually. And he, remember, ultimately talks about how Jesus would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus came eventually as our great high priest, and the writer of Hebrews ultimately builds this case to say Jesus is a priest not according to the tribe of Levi, because Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, remember. He wasn't of the Levitical line. Jesus' priesthood, which is an eternal priesthood, a priesthood that continues forever and ever and ever, it was a different priesthood, it was a higher priesthood, and, and the writer of Hebrews says it was a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek a different type of priesthood that superseded the priesthood of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament. And here now, as he's writing about this man Melchizedek, he tells us someone who has no beginning of days or end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest continually. And it says, Consider how great this man was, who even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of all his spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi that receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, their brethren, that they may come, they've come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them receives tithes from Abraham, and he blessed Abraham who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, he says, lastly, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is always blessed by the better or by the greater. In other words, he's telling us the reason that this individual blessed Abraham is apparently there was a superiority of this individual Melchizedek in comparison to Abram. And he and Abram both realized if he was going to bless Abraham, which we see him do there in verse 19 and 20, it says that he pronounces a blessing upon Abram. Abram realized the superiority of this individual Melchizedek. And Melchizedek realized his greatness over Abram, who again, what, was God's chosen individual. He was God's chosen vessel. But yet there was a superiority to this man Melchizedek as the greater blessing the lesser. So question comes to mind, who is this Melchizedek? You know, there's dispute, and you're free to come up to your own conclusions. Some say, well, clearly he's a type of Christ. I don't doubt that. He pretty clearly, obviously, is a type of Christ in the Old Testament because it's not until Jesus that there is the dual office of a king and priest. Jesus was king of kings, and he also is our great high priest. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. It says Melchizedek came out and brought what? Bread and wine. Well, that sounds symbolic, doesn't it? Bread and wine, a picture of Jesus with the bread and the wine, the elements of communion that he offers to us. And we see these many pictures together of how no doubt Melchizedek is certainly a typology of Jesus. And ultimately Jesus is a priest according to the line of Melchizedek. The Bible teaches us that. Others wonder, is this perhaps even a theophany? In other words, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Bible. 
a pre-incarnate appearance. In other words, prior to the time of the incarnation, when we say pre-incarnate experience, prior to the time when Jesus was born of the womb of a virgin woman and was incarnated and came as God in flesh to live on this earth, it seems that there were times when the eternal Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who was forever existent before he came in a body of flesh, he, he existed forever, that there were times when he showed up and manifested himself in times of old in the Old Testament. And some people believe that this Melchizedek is actually a theophany. It, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, that this is actually Jesus here. It's interesting that in John chapter 8, when the Jews were disputing with Jesus, and Jesus is arguing with them, and he says, you're of your father the devil because you do the things that your father does. And they say, we, we have Abraham as our father. We're not of the devil. How dare you say that? Abraham is our father. And Jesus says this in John 8, 56 and 58. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old. And yet you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Interesting, Jesus said in John chapter 8, that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And it says, and he saw it, and he was glad when he saw my day. And they right away say, what are you, what are you crazy? You're not even 50 years old. How could you see Abraham thousands of years ago? You're not even 50, you're only in your 30s. What do you mean Abraham saw you and he rejoiced the day that he saw you? And Jesus says, hey, before Abraham ever was, I am. I'm eternally. So possibly Jesus is referring to this occasion. There was some time in the history of Abraham's life when Jesus says that Abraham saw him that they had an encounter and they had an experience. This could be that possible occasion. Again, we're not certain here. Verse 19 tells us, however, this Melchizedek blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says, Abram gave him a tithe or a tenth of all. So again, Abram, in response to blessing, gives him a tenth of the spoils. Now, again, first time the word tithe shows up in the Bible. Interesting. People, oh, tithe, that's, we're not under the law anymore. Well, truly, the word tithe precedes the law. Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek in response to the blessing in his life as a response in, in appreciation. In Genesis, later on, Jacob, it says, will give a tithe. So this concept precedes even the law of God. Of course, when we get to the New Testament, we're not under the law. However, we're under grace anyway. But it's interesting that we do see this for the first time surfacing in the Bible here. Verse 21, let's finish this up. It says, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, literally give me the souls, and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only, says, what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anner and Eshkol and Mamre, 
Let them take their portion. So Abram says, what, what the others who traveled with me and fought the battle did, if they want to receive due compensation for their victory and, and their efforts in the battle, that's fine. But again, here's the king of Sodom, and what's he doing? He's now offering to Abram, he says, look, just give me all the souls, and you just take all the material goods for yourself. All I want is just the souls, the people. And as Abram hears this offer... How beautifully, again, in verse 22, Abram says, Look, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing. He says, not even a thread or a sandal strap. I don't want anything. There's nothing that you can give me that God wouldn't give to me instead. And he says, I don't want to receive anything from you for one reason. He says, lest you would be able to say, I have made Abram rich. And Abram says, for the sake of the glory of God, no. No. Because I don't want you to be able to say, as the king of Sodom, that some worldly king made me rich. So he says, I appreciate your offer, but no. He says, all right, because what did God say to Abram? I'll bless you. I will bless you. I will make you brilliant. And, and Abram here, and, and we'll take this and use it to transition into, into chapter 15, because we're out of time for tonight. But take notice how Abraham's desire was for the glory of God. And at a moment when he could have very easily taken this opportunity of the king of Sodom being presented to him, he was zealous for the glory of God and he said, you know what, no, I'll rely on God to be God in my life and to bless and to do the things that he does. God has taken care of me. And you know what, let me just encourage you, be careful. Be careful of looking to the world to get what God's responsibility is. To give to you. Let God be God in your life and let God do it in a way whereby God can get all the glory because that's what matters. We exist to give glory to the Lord and don't let the ways of the world steal an opportunity for God to be glorified for what he does in your life. Let's stand, let's pray and read ahead. We'll use that as we kind of, as it does transition in the beginning of chapter 15 next week. Father, thank you for the scriptures and these chapters and the things that they speak and say, or for the lessons they teach us. And we just ask you to help us this week as we walk out our lives to live by faith and, Lord, to be zealous for your glory in our lives. We love you, Lord, and commit the rest of this week to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.